0: This is a pedagogue and D Black digital black lit and composition collaboration. It's a podcast mini series that amplifies black graduate student pedagogies, practices, writings, and lived experiences. Every episode of this mini series is a conversation designed to uplift and celebrate black teachers, scholars, students. Each episode features a new perspective, and each episode highlights the work of Black graduate students and their family line of scholars. You can check out dblack at dblack.org. You can follow dblack on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. dblack is an online and in-person network of Black-identified graduate students and advanced undergraduate students in fields related to the study of language. I'm your host, Shane Wood, let's get started. Let them know that my roots in Mississippi Want not you to love it, turn it up when you went public I'm my worst critic, you don't feel it, you won't hear it. Had you waiting for a minute, just to make sure you were spinning Last song was I, right, but this time coming with a vengeance In this episode, I talk with Christopher Peace Christopher Peace is a 4th year Rhetoric and Composition PhD candidate in the Department of English at the University of Kansas where he teaches composition and professional communication. His current research interests include African-American spiritualities, Zora Neale Hurston, spatial rhetorics, and rhetorical ecologies. His current dissertation project explores African-American religious performances, rhizome theory, and hoodoo identity. Christopher, thanks so much for joining us. Your dissertation explores African-American religious practices, Rhizome Theory, and Hoodoo Identity. Can you talk more about this research and what you're doing through this work? Yeah, thanks. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for this opportunity. Um,
1: yeah, so my dissertation research is really involving African-American religious and spiritual practices and identities um, and rhizome theory So rhizome theory, I'll explain that in a minute, but I'm really engaging kind of like this dynamic, connecting multiplicitous movements um, that happen in identity formation. Um, So I use rhizome theory to explore um, the invention Um, Subversion and Adaptation of African-American Spiritual Identity. Um, So African-American Spiritual Identity kind of like outside of or alongside of the black church, uh, because there's lots of African-American rhetoric um, that kind of explore the black church, but I'm interested in other things um, when it comes to African-American practices, um, religious practices. So that's why I want to focus on um, hoodoo, which is a set of religious and spiritual practices um, founded by, started by African-Americans. So hoodoo in particular is indigenous, um, it's herbal, and it's kind of like a healing, supernatural, controlling folk tradition that is started Um, in the United States in particular. Some people say it started in the Delta of Mississippi. Um, One particular hoodoo writer says it began in a Delta in particular. Um, But it aided early U.S. Africans and their descendants in speculating and um, implementing alternative realities. Hoodoo's ideology and practice are mainly nature-based and discourse-based, I would say. So it kind of like uses herbs, minerals, sky patterns, bones, animals, the Bible, um, another text Um, other texts like um, the sixth and seven books of Moses to kind of like derive um, its practices. Obviously throughout US history, there's been kind of like these cultural erasure blows that have happened for African-American identity, especially as it um, pertains to our connection to our African identity. But I see hoodoo as kind of like a rhetorical response that unifies the multiple African-derived religious lineages that survives in the US. So in this light, hoodoo is like the unifying rearticulation of a number of African practices in a US context, um, kind of responding to a lack of mythology that, of course, was the result of cultural erasure. So there's hoodoo, the rhizome um, that I'm using. Um, rhizome theory comes from the metaphor of an actual natural phenomenon called the rhizome, right? The rhizome is a postrate, um, subterranean, root-like system. So it's kind of like rootlets. Um, and it produces leaves and other roots, and it's kind of like an intermingling or intertwined root system, basically. Just like ginger root, crabgrass, um, potatoes is a rhizome, the lotus plant, also a colony of rats (laughs) is also a rhizome. So anything that kind of forms this unified multiplicity, right? This theory was popularized by Gilles Deleuze and Guattari as a cultural metaphor in their book, Capitalism and Schizophrenia, where they use the rhizome to oppose vertical hierarchical thought. Just like a tree, right, has kind of this tap root at the bottom and everything flows from the tap root. Um, The rhizome is the opposite of that right because it's multiple roots coming from multiple places and there's no hierarchy and in how information is transferred and how the plant grows. So yeah, so I'm using rhizomes because rhizomes can be propagated, displaced, replanted, cut off from its origins and replanted in another place, right? And I'm saying that hoodoo is like that. Hoodoo is just like the rhizome because hoodoo um, was cut off from Africa and replanted in the U.S., just like many other um, African diasporic religions um, like Ifa, Santaria, Lakumi, Condomble, but particularly hoodoo is U.S. Africans and their descendants, right? Also with rhizome theory, I'm looking at Caribbeanist, Edouard Glissant, um, who's an Afro-Martician poet. He uses the rhizome to stress that um, it's important for identity formation, which again is what I'm kind of looking at with hoodoo practices, right? So Glissant defines um, rhizomatic identity as a principle in which each and every identity is extended through a relationship with the other. Um, So identity is relational, right? So it's not necessarily coming from one tap root, one tree root, but it's a relational um, pattern of intertangling roots. The root isn't really a marker of origin for glissant or exclusion. It's not really an anchor for identity, but it's a part of continuous intertwining of histories, languages, cultures, and people, and creolization. Um, so basically, that's what I'm looking at when it comes to hoodoo: how it uses the environment, how it responds to the environment, how it uses different African um, lineages, how it uses an assemblage of, you know different natural elements as well as spiritual elements to seek out its
0: practices. Can you talk about your educational background and how your experiences and research inform your pedagogical practices? What are some of your overarching pedagogical emphases?
1: I, when I think of um, my personal pedagogy, I instantly think of my church upbringing um, and how it played a major role in the several literacies that I already have developed. I grew up in Clinton, Mississippi, um, which is right beside Jackson, Mississippi, which is the capital of Mississippi. (laughs) Um, So even though I grew up in Clinton, I got my education from Clinton. I went to Jackson for church. Clinton was very white very Southern Baptist um, and that kind of (laughs) infiltrated into the educational process. Right. But in Jackson, of course, I just felt like it was a more culturally dense experience. Um, So yeah, I really gathered a lot of literacy experiences um, from church, taking notes in church and um, documenting the services. I also I also taught adult Sunday school, right? Um, so it was, a, it was a lot of um, things that I did in church that helped me form what I know about language, culture, and literacy. That movement to my classroom, right? So how do we take the literacies that we already have um, from just our experiences living and bring it to our writing, bring it to kind of like um, how we construct um, for assignments and things of that nature. So fast forward to my master's experience, my uh, uh, obtaining my master's program. I went to Jackson state university, which is an HBCU in Jackson, Mississippi. My thesis focused on Zora Hurston and what I call conjure memes, which is basically bits of conjure or bits of hoodoo. Conjure is really um, a synonymous name kind of for hoodoo. Um, so she Hurston kind of like um, collected these bits of hoodoo knowledge throughout her ethnographies. And I looked at Mules and Men and Tell My Horse in particular, which are her two ethnographic novels. But with looking at Hurston and capturing kind of like the real sound and shape of Southern Black dialect, which is what she does in her work, I was prompted to um, kind of follow that trail when it comes to metalinguistic awareness um, in the classroom for my students. So I wanted my students to understand how they use a language um, Um, and the complexities of their understanding of language, kind of like the cultural complexities of their understanding of language and how language is malleable and contextualized um, throughout various situations. So how I did that really for, and that was real, my first real, you know, official teaching experience at Jackson State, So how I did that really was to focus on argumentation, have the students understand that there's an audience, um, the rhetorical triangle, basically, right? There's an audience, there's a speaker, there's a a message or a purpose. um, And argumentation really was the way for me to do that at that level. Um, So moving from... My master's program, which is a Jackson State right to the University of Kansas, I was um, accepted into the rhetoric and composition program here, the doctoral program here. Two totally different experiences teaching, um, two totally different, you know, student uh, populations, student audiences, and composition classrooms. Um, but when I came to KU. Um, I expanded my engagement with the rhetorical methods by studying genre theory in particular and writing transfer um, rhetorical genre studies just really helped me understand writing, my uh, my writing processes um, in a more grounded way, in a, in a way that I can approach it easier. So with this training, I began using rhetorical genre studies as a methodology for all of my first year courses. So in comp one and comp two, we were talking about genre, right? Um, so teaching about genre uh, allowed student writers to really understand um, rhetorical flexibility and to develop the transferable skills needed to write to whatever um, assignment that they encounter at the university level. So hopefully, you know, my writing class has helped them even outside of the composition course, right? But yeah, because of my interest in ecology and um, eco-composition too, and how the environment discursively shapes writing. I always try to include some kind of like, I always try to include environment-based projects um, in my course, in my composition courses. Once I asked students, this was before COVID, but once I asked students to go to a particular building, whether that be on campus or off campus or a particular business, to analyze the genres operating at that scene. Um, So that was interesting. And I also did a project with a multi-genre project that focused on building a dystopian society using different genres. (laughs) Um, Right now in my course, in my 102 Composition 2 course, I'm... Doing uh, multi literacies or really a multiple literacies, I'm pulling on theories of multi literacies, but not deeply. But I do want students to understand that they already have multiple literacies at play. Um, that's kind of one thing that I wish I could have encountered at the beginning of my like college career, I guess, is that I already have multiple literacies, right? I already have multiple skills that I can bring um, to this situation. I just need to know how to transfer
0: it, right? You've worked with the project on the history of Black writing and the Zora Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Can you talk more about these digital and public humanities-based educational spaces?
1: Um, so, when I first came to KU, my first year I was a GRA, and so I wasn't teaching, I was working for the Project on the History of Black Writing, HBW, and I also worked for Dr. Peter Grund um, with some of his Salem writings. For HBW, um, it was a real um, fascinating experience to work there. Um, HBW is a research unit in the English department here at KU. Um, and it was founded in 1983 at the University of Mississippi <laughs> in Oxford um, by Dr. Maryam Graham, who is a profound scholar, professor. Um, HBW in particular is committed to literary recovery work in black studies, um, innovative scholarship, when it comes to like digital humanities and book history, professional development and curriculum transformation and public literacy programming. Um, the, the major um, streamline through that for me and for HBW is really taking lesser known black author texts and digitizing them and placing them in the academic circulation. Um, So people can know them and include them in their own research. Um, So everything HBW does is kind of, you know, including lesser known Black author text in some way to make Black studies um, and Black um, studies accessibility um, more rich and more accessible um, for digital purposes. So I've worked there as an office manager um, and as one of the leaders for HBW's public programming um, called Black Literary Suite. Um, So Black Literary Suite basically is a program that HBW does, I think once a year to do some type of public um, program that centers Black Text of course, Um, the one I helped with was called Black Writing in Real Time, which is R E E L time, Um, and it talked about black Black authored novels and their film adaptations, and it was a there was kind of like this digital archive that you can go through. There was a map that uh, placed black films on a U.S. frame. And there was also this panel of many filmmakers and even some people from Netflix. Um, It was a real great time. I really enjoyed it. Um, I also worked with BBIP, which is the Black Book Interactive Project, um, to help organize a metadata collection of Black author texts. Again, so to really put pieces of this text online, so when people key search things, um, different things will pop up or a wider array of things will pop up under key searches. So with this program, I was connected to the Zora Festival. So through uh, Dr. Graham, um, I was connected to N.Y. Nithiri. Um N.Y. was over Dr. Graham in her library, something with the library studies. But yeah, so N.Y. theory is the, you know, the official uh, executive director of the Zora Festival, and also a program called Preserve the Eatonville Community. Um, And this is based in Eatonville, Florida. Um, Eatonville, Florida is the uh, oldest African-American incorporated municipality in the United States. Um, And Zora Hurston. Uh, grew up there. Um, she wasn't born there, but she grew up there. Hurston's father was the mayor of the city. He was also a preacher as well. Um, to be in the very place and space, you know, that Zora walked, grew up in, ran through. is really important when uh, I think about cultural preservation in, in that way. So again, through HBW, I was connected to N.Y. The theory. And for the 30th anniversary, my first time, I've been to the festival three times now. So my first time was the 30th anniversary, which was like real big, right? Um, It's been running for, right now, it's been running for 32 years. So each year there's a festival um, at the beginning or toward the end of January. And this festival centers Eatonville, you know, as the, the first black city in the United States. And it has city tours, there's academic conferences, there's musical performances, there's an outdoor festival where there's lots of vendors selling different cultural pieces, art, things of that nature. But I met Alice Walker first off, which was amazing. Uh, but I also had the chance to drive Alice Walker and friends to the gravesite of Zorna Hurston, which is like, an hour away, no, two hours away from Eatonville in Fort Pierce, um, Florida. Yeah, so that was an amazing experience because, um, you know, um, Alice Walker discovers or she plots uh, or, you know, she puts a tombstone on Zorna Hurston's grave where there is no tombstone, right? And she um, traces her journey in her book In Search of Our Mother's Gardens. So just to be like in
0: that book, in that experience, it was like, I don't even know if anything else in my life will ever top that. How can the Academy support Black teachers, scholars, and students? This question begins early, of course,
1: right? Even before academy, <laughs> the Academy, how how can Black people in education be better supported or better represented throughout the educational process? Uh, but like I mentioned before, Um, I wish someone had told me about the literacies and the strengths that I've already had um, as kind of like this Black undergraduate student, right? Um, So maybe even having more cultural literacy. So more students can connect to reading and writing and culture and um, ways that they know how to right um, to have those experiences in the composition course in whatever you're teaching would be great um, to have those resources right to, to have that um, that encouragement to do so but also to have the resources to do so um yeah, resources is a thing, right? Like for me, I definitely needed financial support <laughs> going through. I still need financial support as a PhD student, right? Um, so that that's definitely something that could happen would be more financial opportunities for people who are really interested in doing this, right? Um, for Black people interested in Black scholarship is really important to make spaces, make intentional spaces for Black scholars in that way. Um, so yeah, just being more intentional about bringing
0: literacies up front and financial support would be my answer. Thanks, Christopher. And thank you pedagog listeners and followers for tuning into this pedagog and D Black collaboration. Last song was I right, this time coming with a That's my good friend Raph Peters aka Kazo. He's a Houston based rapper and that's his single Liddy. You can check him out on YouTube. YouTube.com backslash KZO music. That's K-Z-O-E music.